0: For the very first time in human history, we are producing, manufacturing, intelligence like production. Raw material comes in, a lot of, of course, a lot of genius goes into that box, and what comes out is, is intelligence that's refined. You're listening to
1: Gradient Descent, a show about machine learning in the real world, and I'm your host, Lucas Bewald. Today on Gradient Descent, I interviewed a guest that I've been looking forward to interviewing for quite a long time. This is Jensen Huang, who is the CEO and founder of NVIDIA, which, if you've trained a machine learning model, you've probably trained it on NVIDIA hardware. We get into machine learning and we talk about his views on what the future holds. This is a super fun interview, and I really hope you enjoy it. All right. Well, thanks so much for doing this. Um, We collected questions from our community had a ton, so there's more questions that I'm sure we can get through. So I'm going to get in my questions first. And okay. I, I wanted to start with like the number one question I wanted to ask you, which I've always wondered about, which is, I think almost everyone training machine learning models these days uses um, NVIDIA. And I was really curious about how conscious of a strategy that was, like when you started to think about it and how you made that happen.
0: It it started. It started when almost simultaneously, uh, three different research teams uh, reached out to us, asking us to help them accelerate their neural network models. And it turned out the reason for that was because they were all trying to submit for ImageNet, the 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 big competition. And so deep learning came into our consciousness kind of around that time.
1: And what year is this?
0: This is uh, when, when was when was uh, Alex's uh, ImageNet.
1: Yeah, it must have been like 2011, maybe.
0: Uh, Yeah, I would have, I was going to say 2012 or 2013, but, but anyhow, it's something like that. And so, anyways, AlexNet, it was that, it was that year. Um, But it was, it was kind of around our consciousness around that time. The the thing that was really exciting was, was we all know that computer vision was hard to do. And for Alex to have created a neural network, trained it on a whole bunch of data, and broken the record of, of uh, computer vision experts, of which many of them uh, were at NVIDIA trying to do the same uh, using using human-engineered features, that giant breakthrough caught a lot of our attention. And so, so computer vision, as you know, is one of the foundations of artificial intelligence, and all of a sudden, a giant leap happened. And when discontinuity happens is something that important, it really caught our attention. I, I think the, 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 the difference between what happened um, around the rest of the world versus us, is we, we we took a step back and we said, you know, what what is the implication of this, not just for computer vision, but ultimately how software is done altogether? Recognizing that for the very first time, software is not going to be written. Uh, features, predictive features weren't going to be engineered or created by humans, but somehow uh, automatically extracted out of data, refined out of data somehow uh, to recognize patterns, relationships, and somehow learn the representation of, of, uh, of uh, some predictive model, that observation early on uh, caused us to, to ask the question, you know, how does this affect the future of software? How does this affect the future of computer science? How does this affect the future of computing? How would you change the way a computer, uh, uh, if, if the way that you write software is different, then how does it change the way you would design computers? And uh, if the software that's written is written by a computer versus a human, how does it affect the type of computers you would design? And so we, we had the good sense of thinking about it uh, from first principles, the implications for uh, the entire field of computer science and the entire field of industry. And, and which, which ultimately led to asking the question, what about the implications to all the different industries? And so I, I think that the, uh, the good fortune was we, we were interested in computer vision. Um, we saw the gigantic breakthrough from Alex and uh, of course, Jeff Hinton and, and the, the folks at Toronto. And, uh, and we simultaneously were working on it uh, with several other labs at the same time. And so I, I think it was, it was partly good fortune um, partly having the sense to to uh, realize the the profound implications to computer science and then asking ourselves what the implication is for everything.
1: But I think one of the things that you've done amazingly well is just stayed dominant in this space. Like, you know, you might have had a head start, but of course lots of other people have, you know, noticed that this is a really valuable space. And I've been hearing since maybe 2014 companies saying, Hey, you know, we're gonna make the next Deep learning, you know, training um, GPU or TP or something like that. But you've actually really maintained this ubiquity in the market, and I, I wonder what you attribute that to. Is it more the architecture of the chip, or is it more the the software like CUDA and CUDA or is it is it something else that kind of keeps you ahead of the competition?
0: Well. Um- we're partly, partly because the company was was um, formed properly for this opportunity. We were um, always in the field of accelerated computing. You know, if you go all the way back to computer graphics, all the way s- since the beginning of our company, this, this new way of doing application acceleration, domain-specific application acceleration of which computer graphics is one, um, scientific computing and physics simulations and others is kind of an, um, another. Image processing, for example, is another. Uh, you could argue that that deep learning is yet another. And so these different domains of, of applications, the company was started with that mission in mind. Now, in order to do accelerated computing, domain-specific accelerated computing, you really have to be a full stack company. You have to understand what is the application, the nature of the application you're trying to accelerate. You have to redesign the algorithm because the way that you would you would write an algorithm, develop an algorithm for sequential processing is radically different than parallel processing. And, and so uh, algorithm engineers, uh, the, our company has a, a richness of algorithm engineers. Um, and you have to think about the system software and the systems differently because the the, the workloads change the, uh, the bottlenecks. And so you have to think about system software differently. You have to think about systems differently. You have architecture ships differently. And so our company is, is fortunate that, that we are a full-stack company that goes all the way to the research of algorithms. Uh, and and that's, that's what it really takes to be an accelerated computing company. But I, I think the, the advantage that we have is that we've been a full-stack computing company for a very long time. And um, we had taken this, that skill set from computer graphics uh, to imaging to scientific computing. And then when, when deep learning came along, it was a problem that our, our company was very adept at solving. That's a good segue into a question
1: a lot of people had that I I have also, which is is there a lot of tension between the needs of gamers and and maybe crypto miners and and scientists and people in deep learning and you know how do you trade those off into a single um, chip like how do you prioritize the different needs or maybe there's no tension because everyone has to do the same type of workload. I'm, I'm curious how you think about that.
0: Yeah, there's absolutely a tension. And um, I, uh, for example, scientific computing, because it has a large body of uh, historical code and they could be in FP64, uh, whereas uh, for consumer applications, FP32 is just fine. Whereas for uh, deep learning, it's uh, quite a large, large amount of different types of formats uh, that, that could be used. Um, the nature of the processing could be a little different. Sometimes it's very dense uh, uh, computation. Sometimes it's a little bit more sparse computation. Ray tracing, for example, is very sparse. Um, and rasterization, on the other hand, is, is rather dense. Image processing is ra- rather dense. Um, and you have different uh, computation natures. You have different precision that you have to support. Each one of the industries have a very large number of. Uh, applications that are in use uh, that you want to support and be able to uh, accelerate. And so each one of these industries are a little different. We uh, we try to build uh, we build a, a GPU that is universal in the sense that all of these applications can run on any of our GPUs. And that that gives developers a very large install base to target. They know that when they develop on our architecture it'll run everywhere. The only question is, in each one of the, the processors that, that they run, uh, is it better for scientific computing or is it better for machine learning or is it better for imaging or computer graphics? And we, we, uh, we shape the size of those capabilities, uh, those functionalities, if you will, uh, for the different applications, uh, different markets that we serve. So in, in the case of GeForce, there, there, are, there is no FP64 richness, although it runs. It runs rather, rather slowly. In the case of uh, deep learning chips, it'll run computer graphics, but it'll run less well than GeForce and so on and so forth. And, and so we, we, um, we adjust the size of the functionality uh, to the market that we serve. And um, uh, in combination with the software stack that goes on top of it, uh, we, we should be able to bring the best products for, for the use case. Otherwise, everything is universal and everything just kind of works. Computer graphics, scientific computing, training, inference. We really believe that developers ought to have the largest possible install base and not worry about whether the software is going to run or not. It should al- always run. The question is is uh, whether it runs to its uh, fullest capability.
1: I see. Well, another another question along those lines is, do you think radical changes are coming. In particular, do do you think quantum computing is something like really relevant to you, like something that will be a practical reality in the next, you know, like in our lifetimes or the next five to 10 years?
0: It will definitely be in our lifetime, lifetimes, because Lucas, you and I are still pretty young. (laughs) And and so we'll definitely see it. However, it's not likely to be in the next five years to be uh, generally useful. On the other hand, on the other hand, the important thing is, and this is this is really the marvelous thing about about machine learning and deep learning, we've really, in many of the applications, whether it's drug discovery or uh, large combination planning and and, oper- and, and uh, optimizations, pathfinding, for example, uh, traveling salesperson problems, uh, these type of problems that people have historically thought uh, would need Quantum computing, because of machine learning, because of AI, we've made giant leaps. I mean, it's not you know Moore's law type leaps. If you look at look at the, the the body of work of of your customers and and our customers and the scientists that that work in both of our companies, in the last ten years, in the last ten years, where Moore's law, if it, it was moving at full rate, would have increased performance by probably a hundred x. Many applications, because of machine learning and deep learning, it's improved by a million x. Totally, we've improved performance by a million times, and over the next over the next ten years, uh, I fully expect that because of a couple of different innovations uh, between accelerated computing and the the further ex- exp- advances that we're expecting in deep learning, and this new field called physics informed neural networks. We're doing some really fantastic work there. In many areas in scientific discovery, we're going to see probably another million X. And so, so a million X advance uh, is something that that's kind of hard to wrap your heads around. Um, but we're, we're going to see that in so many different fields, whether it's in, in healthcare or climate science or you know other other fields of physics that, that are really important to us. So are you someone that
1: believes that we'll see AGI in our lifetime? Do you, do you think the singularity is coming?
0: Uh, I don't know about that. However, if we reframe the problem, if we reframe the question just slightly and say, uh, will, will AI be able to do things that are uh, much, much better than humans can? Uh, you and I both know that, in fact, if you reframe the question that way, AI in many, many fields are already superhuman. And, and I, I just I think the, the number of superhuman human skills that AI will learn over the course of the next decade uh, it, is quite extraordinary. I, I doubt that there will be many manipulation tasks uh, that, needs, that are repetitive that robotics won't do better than humans. Um, and, which is one of the reasons why th- there's so much work in surgical robotics. The, the, be, their hands will never shake. Um, uh, they'll be be able to to uh, make the the most minute and the most precise of incisions, and its perception ability is going to be incredible. And so, so I, I think that that um, the, the coming years we're going to see superhuman AIs. Uh, it, it won't, they won't be like us, but in many fields of uh, many domains of activities, they'll be quite quite incredible.
1: But I imagine where you sit, you're watching AI help with chip manufacturing and, and design better chips. And you're probably seeing that have compounding returns, which I think is sort of the, the thesis behind the, the singularity, right? It's sort of AI starts to create AI. You just see this, this exponential.
0: That's exactly it's... right. Look, we're not going to be able to build next generation chips without AI. And, and that's, that's kind of a, a remarkable statement that that all of the uh, the chip design process the architecture process the, and today we we have five of the world's top 500 supercomputers in our company and we are producing software that gets shipped with all of our ai chips and without ai we we can't produce software that runs the ai and in the future without ai we wouldn't be able to design the chips that that we use to to run AI, and so so that's right. This this circular positive feedback system is about to go into turbocharge, and and so I, I I have every confidence that that the next ten years we're going to see even greater advances, um, not necessarily at the transistor level, but absolutely at the computation level. Are you? Do you have any concerns
1: about as? Um... You know, compute gets um, more and more important to advances in science. That there's impact on the climate, or even impact on access of who's able to make scientific discoveries, or who's able to kind of make the the next really exciting company if they need a supercomputer to to do that.
0: First of all, you know, one of our greatest contributions to to uh, to the industry is we democratized scientific computing. Because of NVIDIA GPUs, the, the the breakthroughs for AlexNet wasn't a supercomputer in the cloud. It was a GeForce card. Totally. Simultaneously, uh, researchers around the world were buying GeForce GPUs, and because architecturally they're all the same as the the supercomputers we we're building, uh, they were able to use that to to uh, discover the next uh, n- n- the breakthrough that we all we're all enjoying today. The same thing is happening in in so many different fields. And so so I'm, I'm really proud of the fact that we've we democratized high performance computing. We put it in the hands of any researcher. They don't have to go get gigantic funds to be able to, to do their research. One, one of the researchers, scientists that was in quantum chemistry said to me one day that uh, he had learned from his son who was working uh, at, at one of the computer companies here in Silicon Valley that he should go and buy our gaming cards uh, and download the CUDA SDK and port the quantum chemistry software that he was running on an IBM supercomputer onto our gaming GPU. And he was so amazed how fast it was, he had to wait for the rest of the week uh, for the supercomputer to finish so that he could compare the software, to compare the results that it was the same. And and then he, he, he went and bought as many GPUs as he could from from uh, from the retail stores and bought and made himself a bespoke you know a homemade supercomputer. That's awesome. And he and he said to me he said to me you know Jensen because of your work I'm able to do my life's work in my lifetime and and in a lot of ways we built him a time machine and he he was able to see the future in a way that otherwise couldn't and and so I I think I think the first contribution is we we democratized uh, scientific computing the second thing that we did. Because of artificial intelligence and this uh, idea of pre-trained models and transfer learning, we have we now have the ability to essentially have large companies pre train intelligence. It's almost like creating a whole bunch of new college grads, super well-educated college grads that are now going off into the world that people can then adapt to their particular skills. So in a lot of ways, Lucas the work that you do the work that i that i do we, what we've done is we've actually lowered the bar we've democratized intelligence we've democratized computer science so that almost anybody can download a pre-trained model and perform superhuman capabilities for their application domain by retraining it by adapting it by you know by applying a transfer learning uh, capability to it and so i i think i think it's um Artificial intelligence has has the most powerful, is the most powerful force that has come along, and one of its benefits is going to be to democratize computer science. Now, one of the things that 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 you mentioned earlier about uh, energy, I I think that the, one of the greatest projects we're, we're working on is is this thing called Earth Two, which is a digital t- which we're we're going to try to build a digital twin to mimic the climate. Of the Earth, it's a it's a um, multi physics problem, you know, thermodynamics and and fluid dynamics and chemistry problem and a biology problem and a human driver problem and economics problem, and all of it contributes in this geometry aware, uh, because you know terrain matters and uh, multi physics mesophysics, mesoscale problem, and uh, uh, we finally might have the necessary algorithms. To be able to take a swing at this and build a, a full-scale digital twin of the Earth, um, and hopefully uh, inspire us uh, by giving us a, a model to uh, test our, our mitigation strategies and our and our adaptation strategies, and and uh, simulate whether the technologies we're going to use to absorb carbon or um, uh, reduce reduce carbon emission uh, will have the sus- the the necessary impact uh, a decade two decades you know four decades from now and so so if not for for uh, deep learning and the work that we're doing that wouldn't even be possible I wouldn't even imagine doing it cool so one
1: of the things I wanted to make sure I asked you um, on a on a personal level I guess is I you know I've really admired how you've run the same company for a really long time and it doesn't look like an easy Company to run. I mean, there's like a, a lot going on and a lot of physical things. And it, it clearly hasn't just been this sort of like, you know, kind of like rocket ship SaaS uh, startup. And yet you seem very technically current. Like it really does seem like you stay on top of trends and keep a level of technical depth. And, and I was wondering how you do that, like how you stay educated about, um, you know, what's going on in scientific computing and, and machine learning and other topics.
0: Well, I'm a, I'm a little, I'm a little sleepy right now because I, I was up at three o'clock reading, and uh, um, there, there's just no other way. I think you just have to keep on learning you're just interested in the topic and he just i don't, I don't know i don't know that there's yeah. <laughs> i wish there i wish lucas i wish it was wisdom to pass i paused for a second as it was there a secret Nope. i think i think part partly of course is really where's the where's the energy and the, and the the curiosity juice coming from um of course being surrounded by really bright people uh you you learn from them which allows you to you know, combine a lot of your own understanding, um, and when you decode a puzzle or you 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 learn something new, it really gets you fired up. And and so, so I think I think I, I you know one one of the most important missions, the purpose of a of a CEO, is to create the conditions uh, where amazing people could do their life's work. And uh, you know, I, I really take that very seriously, and I try very hard to create a condition. Mm-hmm where amazing people could come and be surrounded by other colleagues that are incredible that i think contributes a lot to it and then the, the rest of it you know as a ceo of a tech company you really need to need to enjoy learning about about what's happening uh, in your company which is plenty to learn uh, what's happening around the industry and and see if you could you know imagine a future that that's better for everybody
1: i think a big part of my learning process that's hard to do running a company is kind of tinkering and stuff. I'm wondering if that's, you know, I think you're originally an engineer. Do you, do you find time to ever um, write a little code or, or put something together?
0: Not for a long time, but we get to tinker through other people. Mm-hmm. And, and this is, this is the wonderful thing, you know, NVIDIA is now 24,000 people. And uh, if, if I could tinker a little something with it, just, you know, with everybody, the amount of tinkering that's going around in the company is incredible there's, there's a phrase that I say, I, I, I reach out to my friends and I, I really see them that way. I reach out to my friends uh, all over the company and uh, uh, we brainstorm a little something and they go off and try something and somebody else I'm brainstorming with and they try something and, you know, and, and that, that's uh, just, I guess, tinkering at scale.
1: That's super cool. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> um, Another question a lot of people ask. I'm so I'm curious. You know, I think people originally think of NVIDIA as as for um, games. Are, are you a gamer at all? Do you do you play video games?
0: I haven't I haven't played much games. I I see almost every game that go by um, because we, you know we get the benefit of of some uh, some collaboration that we do with just about every game company in the world. So uh, when they're in the labs, you know, people will tell me and I'll run down and, and go check it out and, and, and play with it a bit. But the, the the last time, probably one of my favorite games was was uh, when Battlefield first came out and uh, my kids were were um, teenagers at home and and they were both uh, coming into their their gaming age and 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 just the three of us playing, you know, online Battlefield was just incredibly fun. That was probably some of the, the funnest memories I've ever had. That's awesome. Um
1: I'm curious. Um, a lot of people, um, you know, a lot of people have been talking about sort of like, you know, supply chain issues and a global chip shortage. Is that something that's like on your mind a lot? Is that is that a problem for for your company?
0: Sure. Yeah. Sure. We um, we build the largest largest uh, chips in the world, and and uh, the most complex computers in the world, and you know. DGX is a few hundred pounds. It's so heavy. It's the heaviest computer that's being built today. It is so heavy that it takes a robot to build it, like a car. You know, most, most computers don't have to be built that way, but DGX is, you know, DGX is, is a miracle of, of computing and we uh, built it completely from, from a blank sheet of paper, uh, wrote all the software and all the tools that went on top of it. And, and, and there's a lot of components inside. You know, especially especially something that that's a few thousand watts, uh, is quite a miracle. And totally. And so there are a lot of parts that, and all it takes is, is one diode or one voltage regulator to keep it from shipping. And so, so uh, so our Nvidia supply chain is is quite an uh, amazing machine. And we know that artificial intelligence uh, is really is, is such an amazing thing because it's it's we are producing intelligence. For the very first time in human history, we are producing, manufacturing intelligence like a, like production. Raw material comes in. A lot of, of course, a lot of genius goes into that box, and what comes out is is intelligence that's refined. And so, large companies are depending on us. AI is is a intelligence being manufactured at large scales. So, um, uh, the, the teams are working really, really hard to keep up with demand.
1: You've been running a video for, for quite a long time. I was curious how you feel like you've changed as a leader over the, the decades of running the company.
0: Wow. Wow. You're, 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 you're almost asking the wrong person. You could ask almost anybody else around me. <laughs> Fair enough.
1: How has your experience changed? Maybe. <laughs> okay. okay.
0: That's, that's an easier question for me. Uh, the The, the when I was 30 years old, I I didn't know anything about being CEO, and and um, I I did my a, a lot of learning on the job. There were many management techniques that uh, were were just really really dumb, and and I don't use them anymore. <laughs> like what? Well, <laughs> um, okay, all right. So so um, I'll give you I'll give you a couple. Awesome, thank you. The list of dumb, the list of dumb things that I've done over the years is quite large. i mean, I could, I could write a book, but for example, I, uh, I really, really wanted in the early days for the chips to tape out, and so, so I thought what we needed to do was motivate the engineers to tape out the chip, and so we had, we had this thing called a tape out bonus. And, and that, that's just, su- that's a supremely dumb idea, and the reason for that is because if the engineers could have taped out the chip; they would have. Uh, and so, putting that extra that bonus there is unnecessary. On the other hand, by definition, they're going to be late, and when they're late, it becomes a demotivator. And so, because they they no longer can earn a bonus, and so the, the bo- tape out bonus for all the CEOs that are doing it, 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 it's a demotivator, not a motivator. It's a little silly, and and I think I think the answer is a chip gets taped out when a chip is ready to be taped out, We can create the conditions by which great work can be done. Uh, we, sh- we can be good listeners and eliminate obstacles for the team. Uh, we could uh, 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 be part of the solution by highlighting issues, recruiting, uh, all kinds of things we can do to help them reason about, about priorities and help them reduce the scope of their work and try to, try to seek the minimum viable product instead of, you know, building such giant things. And there are a lot of different skills that we could have, we could have instilled into the organization. But the one thing that it doesn't really need is a tape out bonus, you know, a, an achievement bonus. And, and because everybody's trying to do their best. And, and so that, that's, that's one example.
1: That's a great one. What, what else? If you got others, I'd love to hear
0: that. <laughs> I, okay, here's another one. All right. Um, well, I, I want I want to be d- diplomatic as well because you know there, there are so many CEOs that, that are out there they could be using some of these techniques and I I hate to be critical of them, uh, so so uh, this is not a criticism. I, I this is just my style. I tend not to do one on ones and and if there's anything that I need to say, I tend to like to say it to to the team and the group that that is working on it so that we're that we're all all. all um, uh, uh, hearing the same things I'm hearing the same things everybody else is hearing the same things uh, instead of being translated
1: yeah. interesting it's a really unusual perspective I think a lot of people think you absolutely must do one on one do you do that across the company do, do you think like your reports and their reports I don't
0: is- do it I don't do it but but I have many leaders who do hmm. and I, I don't criticize them for doing it. I just don't do it and the reason the reason it's, it's probably more important for CEOs not to is because you don't you can't eliminate it completely but you want to reduce the amount of jensen told me or jensen told me that mm-hmm. uh, as a as a way to uh, somehow uh, steer a, a conversation that otherwise should have been done on merits and otherwise you know instead of my will somehow being translated and repeated and interpreted through a chain and so if if i had a particular objection towards something i would say it to more than one person and if I believe that in, in working with the rest of the company, a particular strategy or direction ought to be taken, I would tell everybody at the same time. And so, so I tend, I, I've worked towards this approach because I, I feel it's much more transparent. It puts knowledge and the access to information in the hands of as many people as possible. And of course, it of course attracts more uh, criticism to myself. You know, for example, I might say something to ten people and it is the dumbest thing in the world to say. And and it was a terrible idea. It, you know, couldn't be the a worst possible strategy. But instead of saying it to one person, I don't get the benefit of refining my ideas and then broadcasting it and always be a genius. And so 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 I I, I would I would therefore, in this in this technique, you need to be a little bit more vulnerable. And uh, you need to be able to to uh, deal with the fact that every so often you you said something that that wasn't perfect and uh, it, nobody holds me to a, a standard that needs to be perfect anyhow and so I after nearly thirty years I've kind of I've kind of worked my way past that and so <laughs> so if I say something dumb you know don't don't hold me to it <laughs> give me a chance to change my mind
1: <laughs> is it a different experience running a company where. It feels like it's struggling versus now, where the the stock seems really high, and probably everyone's feeling really good about the prospects. Do do you have to do different things in those different situations?
0: Um, I, I'm never different. I I don't I don't think it's possible to find a correlation between my behavior and the stock price. And I would say for twenty nine years, my behavior and the way that I approach problems. Uh, the way I approach uh, people, uh, the the way I approach our company, our work, uh, exactly the same. There's no correlation whatsoever. And uh, you just you just gotta give me a second. I'll, I'll find all kinds of issues to talk about. <laughs> so, so, so I've got nothing but problems. That you know, CEOs are surrounded by problems, not good news. And so, so I and, and I happen to enjoy that. I enjoy solving problems. And so I, I completely separate um, the financial uh, success of the company, uh, from the importance of the work and doing impactful work. And so I, I've historically always done that, whether the company is doing well or badly, uh, when we were doing badly, particularly during the time when we bet the farm on accelerated computing, uh, we wanted every single chip to have the same architecture that I, I mentioned earlier, the pressure on our, on our financial performance was immense, um, uh, but I was equally as enthusiastic then, and believed as much in in the future as I as I do today.
1: That's incredible. You don't feel the outside pressure at all, or are you able to sort of separate yourself from it?
0: Um, uh, no, I, we as a public company, you're going to feel a lot of outside pressure, and some investors are uh, really artful in in expressing their displeasure and and criticism and. Uh, some some investors are understandably less uh, patient, um, but but it's our job to express uh, the reason why we're doing what we're doing. You know, CEOs have to be we we have to be reasoned. Uh, we have to have a purpose by which we're doing something. If we're clear in expressing why we're doing something and our vision for it, and we we genuinely believe it, we genuinely believe it. My experience has been that people are willing to give it a shot. And so when we first started our company. Uh, 3d graphics uh, consumer 3d graphics didn't exist even apis for it didn't exist and we had to go evangelize that um, and it took longer than people thought uh, when we when we moved into accelerated computing for about 15 years it didn't exist and so it took longer than I thought I, would, I thought it was going to take two years uh, but it took 15 and uh, and AI was the same way uh, I spoke endlessly about the the importance of machine learning and deep learning um, for the first five, six, seven years, I think people just didn't get it, which is fine. You know, that's kind of part of building a new market and building a new, um, new approach. Uh, you have to, you have to recognize that it takes time for people to come along. And so, so I, I think um, I, the industry has been really patient with us, and our employees have been very patient with me, and 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 I've really appreciated it.
1: So, what's the thing that really motivates you right now? Like, what's the the purpose that that you feel like you're serving at this
0: moment our our, our 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 the company doesn't have a mission statement but nobody's nobody's confused at our company and what the mission is and and it really is uh, as, as simple as do impactful work that takes a very long time to succeed because it' it has to be hard for it to be meaningful for our people and that that uh, we are the best in the world at solving and so we seek those problems. I seek those problems. There are two areas that that I'm I'm super excited about right now. Uh, one one area is recognizing that we in several in several domains uh, have invented the intelligence the intelligence capability the technology of intelligence, whether it's whether it's in perception or speech AI or language understanding, um, we're we're now able to have some of these. Technologies that that can um, do these things. However, ultimately, what's valuable is not intelligence. Ultimately, what's valuable is skills. You know, that's we 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 hire new college grads with lots of intelligence, but very few skills. And then we we give them skills uh, by adapting them to domains. And 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 in a, in a lot of ways, that's essentially uh, what is missing right now is is to take this the 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 intelligence technology and translate it into valuable skills valuable skills whether it's uh, driving autonomous vehicles um, valuable skills like uh, customer service and call centers and such valuable skills like automated checkout you know uh, it could be automated skills like radiology and uh, put a radiologist right into the instrument mm. uh, so so there are all kinds of uh, really valuable skills that that we can now create and so that's a big part of of where our energy is right now, is how to take this enabling technology and uh, translate them into skills that customers in the industry, developers, uh, could then adapt for all kinds of different domains. So that's one, the large scale application of art- artificial intelligence. Uh, second is the next era of AI. You know, we, we've done a really good job with soft AI that's in the cloud and uh, recommending music, recommending um uh, movies and, and uh, next item in the cart and so on and so forth. And it's it's really, really incredible. Uh, the the thing that we, we would really like to do is to, if we want to take AI uh, into the point of where people are and into this next phase of its journey, AI has to learn the laws of physics. And so many of the world's challenges, whether it's climate science or, uh, autonomous vehicles or manufacturing or whatever it is, the AI can't just make a prediction. It has to make a prediction that's that obeys the laws of physics and you know, conservation of matter, conservation of energy and such. And um, uh, it has to understand a concept of synchronous time. It has to be working within our time. Uh, so there are, there are a lot of these type of problems that are really impossible uh, to develop that AI unless we have something that is essentially a virtual world That obeys the laws of physics, which is which is the reason why we built Omniverse. We built Omniverse so that several things could happen. It's physically based. It's uh, distributed. It's very large. It has the ability to support very large models. and And the goal is is several folds. One, you could teach a robot how to be a a well functioning robot in this physically based environment. You could connect it to IoT systems, uh, for example, running a robot hardware in the loop, and so it has the ability to um, be connected to the physical world and stay synchronized, meaning to build a digital twin. The concept of a digital twin has been around for some time, but in combination with artificial intelligence, the digital twin is going to have a profound impact on the future. And so, so I'm, I'm super excited about these, these, these areas. One is just the, the application, and then the other is the next phase of AI. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's what Omniverse is all about.
1: Yeah, I, I totally agree that things like omniverse really critical for making robotics work. It, it sounds like you're interested in getting yourself, I mean, your your company closer to the the applications of AI. Is, is that right?
0: We will stay we'll stay um, a couple of clicks away from the actual application. But what we would do is is we would create an application framework for people who are building applications to build applications. And uh, one of the application frameworks that, that uh, I'm really excited about created a, a little demo. They call Toy Jensen at the last keynote, and basically, it's a it's a robot, but it's a virtual robot, otherwise known as an avatar. It, can, it has computer vision, it does speech AI, it understands language, you know, so on and so forth. I'm super excited about that because in the future, uh, you know, many applications. We, we really need to go into the application to experience it, uh, whether, it's a, whether it's a virtual factory or virtual hospital or, or whatnot. It could be for entertainment like Metaverse and, and um, the next generation, the next era of the Internet. You, you want to go into uh, that world. And, and the way to go into that world uh, is through a wormhole called VR. And so, so we can go into that world. Uh, we could also have those agents come out of that world and and to collaborate with us, and so they would come to, come out through the wormhole called AR, and um, uh, and be in our world. Uh, but otherwise, otherwise, the metaverse is enjoyed uh, using my favorite display, which is a computer display. You know, people think that you need to wear head mount displays for the metaverse, but it's, it's further further from the truth. The metaverse will be enjoyed largely on two D displays.
1: Interesting. Well, look, we always end with two questions that I want to make sure that I, I get them in. So the second to last question, and you've touched on some of these topics, but I'm curious when you look at machine learning, do you feel like there's a question that's underexplored, like you would recommend to like a grad student to look into, or if you had more time, you'd like to spend some more time investigating?
0: Well, some of the, some of the research work that's being done right now, it, it you know, there's so many smart people doing this and and they're they're working on it because it's really important. The, the self-supervised machine learning approaches that are multimodality, uh, Lucas, that's going to drive the the living daylights out of both the, the the tools that you're you're building, the platforms you're building, and the platforms we're building. And so, so um, uh, multimodality uh, AI, where you have vision, you and to, the vision doesn't have to just be images; it could be video, uh, it could uh, speech and and natural language. Uh, th- that's going to that's going to take perception to a brand new level. I'm, I'm super excited about that. Uh, I'm excited about zero shot uh, zero shot learning. Uh, you know, and and uh, to be able to uh, to learn from pri- learn from whatever you're trained on, plus the priors uh, that you have, uh, is uh, is really quite exciting and powerful. Um, I I think that one of the areas that that um, uh, is being explored now is to to reproject uh to project not repro- to project uh, the the framework of graphs into the framework of deep learning or graph neural networks mm-hmm. um, graph neural networks graphs of course uh, the the relationship of things uh, basically is, is a is a structure that can uh, describe almost everything meaningful in life and so that's why it's so useful totally but the processing of graphs uh, is cumbersome, and and uh, the breakthroughs with DGL and G- and GNN and um, G- uh, geometric and um, uh, all all of that to to project the graph into the the framework, the the, the constructs of a deep learning um, pipeline, uh, puts it puts it into our world where deep learning has been so effective, mm. and so so I'm excited about that, and, and I hope that a lot more people does does that work, and then and then lastly. Uh, I, I think I think the the um, uh, there will be more uh, more innovation and more uh, design and more creativity that's going to be done in the in the virtual world uh, than than all of the the creativity and design that has ever been done in the physical world. And so, what what people call the metaverse uh, is going to be just brand new pioneers uh, pioneering ground for. Uh, manufacturing, for design, for artists, uh, for entertainment of all kinds. And uh, so I'm super excited about that. I mean, these, there's so many things to work on.
1: Awesome. That was a great answer. Um, I guess our final question in the last few minutes we have, there's kind of this trope that machine learning, especially deep learning projects, almost never see the light of day that they're way harder to manage than you know traditional engineering. I, I'm curious when you look across your customer base, what are the kind of most common issues that prevent machine learning from being, you know, from really solving the problems that that customers actually have?
0: Yeah, this this is really great, and it's a great question. Is also it's also um, uh, one of the things I love love most about about your company and the way you you think about this. Uh, the the um, you know, there's a there's a fundamental difference between the technology of deep learning and and the and the harnessing of deep learning and machine learning to uh, write software. Uh, the the importance of 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 the the methods and the process and the tools uh, that is so vital. What 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 could be described as ML ops um, uh, is so vital. You you have to understand not just the neural network architecture. Um, uh, and be able to invent something that produces excellent results is, is of course, uh, uh, groundbreaking work there already by itself. But a company, in order to take advantage of this, has to realize that in the final analysis, this is an intelligence factory. You have to think of it kind of like a factory. That's the reason why the word ops kind of makes sense. It's a factory. You have, you have the raw material coming in, which is the data. Uh, it gets transformed in the middle through a lot of stages of very complicated transformation, as you know, and and which is which is one of the reasons why your your tools are so so popular. Um, uh, it, it's really complicated stuff, and be able to manage that workflow uh, in, in a productive way to transform that raw material into ultimately uh, an output that is neural network uh, or otherwise intelligence at scale. Uh, it is a quite a, quite a, quite a significant process. And because it's it's a fundamentally new way of thinking about computer science, we used to have a, we used to have uh, you know just engineers do it. Um, and, and I don't mean just in that way, but but we had engineers do it. but now we have engineers backed up by giant supercomputers that are operating these incredible operations software stack um, uh, that you build. And and so so the the refining process, the continuous refining process, the ver- validation process, the simulation process, um, you know uh, th- that entire process had to be reinvented for machine learning, reinvented for deep learning. And and um, uh, it, 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 this is this is the reason why your work is so important. And you guys are doing a great job, and I and I, I really appreciate the work that you do and uh, and all the all the researchers that you support and. Um, and all the workflows that you're making possible, but but that, this is this is the this is what every company needs to understand that 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 software development in the future is a bit of a refinery process, it's a refinement process, it's an ML ops process, it's you know manufacturing.
1: Well, thanks so much. That uh, that's really kind of you, and uh, I'm, I'm I'm touched. I, I appreciate it.
0: Thanks. Keep up the great work.
1: If you're enjoying this interview series, the most helpful thing that you can do for us is leave us a review. It helps other people find the show. And really, we do these shows so that people will watch them. And what I really want is more people to find it. So if you leave us a review, I really appreciate it.